I'm very glad to be here. Thank you so much all for listening. My name is Stephanie Carina, and I'm a clinical psychologist based in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Today, I have my dear friend, Daniel Den Hollander, and former colleague from South Africa. And I'm glad to do the uh, podcast episode on to toxic versus healthy masculinity. Um, thank you so much, Daniel, for being here. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Daniel Den Hollander. I'm a clinical psychologist in one of the most beautiful parts of the world here in Cape Town. And uh, yeah, very excited to uh, be part of your venture into podcast worlds and excited to be one of your guests. Yes, uh, it's my first episode and I'm very excited about it. And I thought immediately of inviting you. I had a good time with you on the Inner Healing challenge that I was doing on my Instagram profile, Psychologist Stephanie. And I, you came with a great topic for today. Uh, it's regarding toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity. So I think this is a very hot topic. Um, and I was wondering, um, how come you came up with this topic? How did you get involved with this topic? Yes, I think it sort of crept up on me. Um, it wasn't a topic that I necessarily wanted to talk about uh, initially, um, but I think to an extent, um, I think it's such a relevant topic. I think there's a lot of confusion around this topic. Um, I don't get the sense that people really know how to think about these types of things. And often the narratives are created before you. And uh, so I think how I got involved with, with the topic itself was people asking me literally to talk about this topic. And after trying to see if I could dodge the topic and talk about something else, I realized, no, this is a topic that needs attention. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think this mm -hmm. is as honest an answer to that question as I can give. Yeah. And so why is this topic important? Um, first of all, perhaps it's good for people who don't know what toxic masculinity is about or what masculinity is about to, to describe that. Could you explain what, what it is about? Yeah, I think, I think that that's part of the problem is um, I think it's one of those topics that we all think we know what we're talking about when we mention it, um, but it actually becomes quite tricky to define it. Um, I think mm -hmm. that's my own struggle in, into it as well. But basically I think in a nutshell is, you know, we are, um, individuals, uh, human beings are, are very reliant on the scripts in which we are born into. And we're often born into scripts because we're living in a discursive world. If we think of our historical background, our cultural background and our social background, um, those all present scripts to us. And throughout a lifetime, mm -hmm. we are on the one hand, we might conform to scripts. And on the other hand, we start to, to question the scripts but then it gets even more complicated because let's say for example if you talk about masculinity um we act as if it's a one sort of one size fits all thing but uh, i mean you're you're in the netherlands i'm in south africa are we going to say that the masculinity scripts in the netherlands and south africa are the same and then you talk about in within south africa we've got something like uh, 11 official languages we've got multiculturalism here although we prefer to call it diversity um, and each culture has its own unique um, masculine scripts um, and so 
you see as it goes along in regards to that um that's where where masculinity becomes a, a very difficult topic to engage with because which script are we talking about or even which masculinity are we talking about and yet a lot of the time when we go on social media or we get into conversations we talk about these things as if they are a set thing that we, we all know about and i think that's where psychology gets dangerous and um, when we construct mm -hmm. um, complexity into into a simplified construct mm -hmm. yes um so yeah you're talking about a script and that reminds me of the fact that actually people have the right and children have the right to develop their authentic self and yes. that means for them to be able to be who they are to feel what they feel and to be able to meet their needs and when there's a script that might interrupt the ability to be authentic the ability to experience all of our emotions basic categories being joy, sadness, fear, and um, anger. And yeah. I believe that these scripts might interfere with the ability, in this case for men, for boys, to be in touch with their fear, if I'm correct. Well, we do this weird thing where we socialize emotions towards uh, genders. So, for example, um, men are, are, are taught... Um, not to cry. Um, equally, women are taught mm -hmm. not to get angry. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and I think that the, the adverse of that is that women are often socialized to cry. So you're happy, you cry, you're sad, you cry, you're anxious, you cry, you're worried, you cry. And men are socialized to be angry. So, you know, we're happy, sorry, we're sad, we're angry, we're anxious, we're angry. Even when we're happy, we're angry. Yes. Um, I learned that when uh, I was watching yes. the Community Shields, so my team Arsenal uh, finally won a trophy, and I went yeah as we as a scored, uh. and my little Babaki of two years old looked at me like he was in trouble or something, and I had to explain to him, "No, mm -hmm. I'm happy that we won," <laughs> and I realized yes. I looked angry yes. to him even though I was happy. Yeah, and. So we're basically conditioned to, to feel certain emotions and to not feel certain emotions. And to go yeah. back to the topic, so how do you think this, what is the deal with toxic masculinity? Um, we just talked about the problem about that. And I'm wondering why did this become a, uh, such a hot topic when why suddenly this appeared how come do you think well i think we've got to put things into perspective so for example in the country where i come from i'm oh, sorry where where i, I live in um because i am originally dutch um but the, the country where i live in i spend most of my life in we have one of the highest gender-based violence rates in the world um we have um great difficulty in regards to things which we call femicides um where um and and those things are not to to, to be looked at uh, or um to be taken for granted i think also we have concepts such as the patriarchal system and the fact that um there has been a lot of um 
difficulty in regards to to women being able to have equality within spaces um and i think you know especially if we look at sort of first wave and second wave feminism um the importance of of women being seen as legally equal people as to men as as what happened with the first wave and then uh, the second wave around economic equality you know that came as a necessity after first world war um when there were just simply not men in in the world because men were, were were asked to go and fight and 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 life still had to go on um and then between first world war and second world war uh, there was all these campaigns to try and get um the, the the women who were employed to want to go back into the households which we all know uh, because we use them as memes in order to show how how toxic that patriarchal was but i think to some mm-hmm. extent to say it's that concept of that we are not all equals um any socialization that takes place that that starts to talk about that um immediately tries to silence or other uh, another person and i think those were the sort of the hallmarks that started it um, although I have a bit of a different way of negotiating with, with this concept of toxic masculinity. I think how I understand toxic masculinity, and, and your uh, listeners are welcome to school me um, if I understand this wrong, but it's how society mm-hmm. allows um, the, if you call it, want to call it the damage or the um, hurt or the prejudice towards, um, in this case, women. Um, and when something like that happens, then it almost becomes normalized through the silencing. And then we start to realize that there's no accountability to the, the people um, who have done harmful things um, or, tra- or, or traumatizing um, things, such as, for example, sexual abuse um, or rape that mm-hmm. occurs within a community and nobody's held accountable for it or bullying, um, especially bullying within the house, uh, within the workplace, uh, sometimes also in the household. Or, or, or household towards women, but also homophobia in general as well. Huh? Absolutely. I, 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 yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. it, it happens um, and um, I think it becomes normalized. Uh, often religions play a part in that of of normalizing um, those sorts of prejudice or those sorts of of hate. Um, and then when that happens within a system, then it feels as if that is okayed or that is normalized behavior. And that can become confusing for individuals who are working or who are growing up within those societies as if um, that type of behavior is is acceptable. Yeah. So then we're focusing the the emphasis on, on the also the entitlement of entitlement that men might feel, uh, the violence um, and um, promiscuity, promiscuity, the need for control, as homophobia is mentioned, and so that is the effect it might have on other people. Also, from what I understand, in the eighties, if I'm correct, in the there was a men's movement actually that started this uh, because they were suffering themselves due to the toxic masculinity that script and they had the need for a community uh, rather than the competition that they were experiencing amongst men uh, and the, their need for a multi-generational bonding because of a fa- the lack of bonding with their fathers 
and they wanted to be free to be able to express their emotions. So the toxic masculinity doesn't only affect other people like women or uh, not heterosexual men um, or other gendered people, but it's also themselves. They are suffering themselves as well. That's why I see so often groups, men, men's groups, for instance, uh, nowadays, I'm not sure if you've seen that too, uh, surfacing um, uh, several areas because there's such a need for brotherhood be able to be um, be able in touch to be able to be in touch with their feminine side as well or perhaps their masculine side but not in a toxic way but in a healthy way yeah but it it does ask the question in, in, in regards to where does this come from and, and where did this mm -hmm. take place um, especially some of the qualities in which which you, you just mentioned now is um, what do we what do we actually mean when we talk about toxic masculinity? Um, because if if we don't answer that question from an environmental or social level, then it starts a very dangerous narrative that this must be a biological thing. You know, maybe it's the testosterone. You know, you, you, you hear a lot of that on on things mm. like social media. Um, and yes. the moment that it goes into that, then it's you know, um, if you're a man then you are prone to be suffering from uh, or, or, or be able to be scripted into toxic masculinity. I think there's where we got to go, whoa, hold on a second. Let, let's think a little bit more critically uh, mm -hmm. before we, we uh, move on and, and, and start to do that. Uh, because otherwise mm -hmm. what you do, you any young um, impressionable male that comes through now um, is almost guilty of toxic masculinity before they've even breathed, you know, and, and, and that becomes super dangerous um, mm. because the response to that can be an, a very uninviting one. And I've been thinking mm -hmm. a lot about where that toxicity originated from um, because I, I, I can't accept that it's a testosterone thing. <laughs> you know, we've, we, we've been doing a lot of that as psychologists and psychiatrists and mental health uh, professionals is um, wanting to collate everything to our biology, you know, uh, and maybe I'm, I, I enjoyed the, the nurture part of conversations more than the nature part. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's a dangerous um, road to go. Um, and let's be honest, uh, also what happened in the 70s and the 80s, but maybe even a bit earlier, was we had Prozac Nation, you know, um, the needs that how you are and the things that make you different and an individual um, should actually be medicated out of you if they're not completely abiding to the social standards, you know. Um, mm. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that there's a real danger to that uh, that we pick up within our own profession. Yes. And so, yeah, perhaps it's, it's also in the culture and in, in the generation and um, th threats. Uh, people are afraid to, don't know how to deal with vulnerability sometimes. Um, what I also find, found interesting is the, um, I, I somehow thought that this was going on for ages, that men weren't allowed to cry. But apparently, up to a, this, to a certain to a certain um, um, date, uh, men were able to cry culturally. Were allowed to cry, but that changed during the industrial revolution. Is that correct? 
Yeah, well, this is this is an idea that I've been uh, playing around with, and I think it's a little bit inspired by uh, Mary Poppins, the the Walt Disney movie, and mm-hmm. also inspired by um, Pink Floyd's uh, uh, "The Wall." Uh, you know, the, the where the famous uh, "Another Brick in the Wall" song comes from, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because they start to play around with it with a concept that I think is 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 sort of a little bit forgotten. And it goes a bit mm-hmm. like this. So, in essence, what toxic masculinity is really doing is having an attack on humanity. Um, I think, you know, for me, I would be more comfortable calling about toxic humanity and how human beings mm-hmm. can really treat other human beings in a very poor way. And I'll, I'll explain why I'm saying that. So, if we think before mm-hmm. industrial revolution, industrial revolution, the you know the conveyor belt system, Ford's uh, Ford's big change that wasn't just about creating a motor car, but was also about um, having companies where you had 500 to 1,000 people uh, under your um, um, control, and each one did a really strange um, activity. We, we, uh, there's a beautiful portrayal of that in Charlie Chaplin's, um, I've got to make sure I remember it now, I think it's the modern times, um, where mm-hmm. he plays that role to perfection um, around how men and how um, the individuality of men, uh, which Charlie Chaplin then plays in a humorous way, um, some seem, seem to have to be reconciled within the system. Um, I know from my own uh, past, my I have a grandfather who in the Netherlands was a bike repairsman and salesman, and um, he did, he was he started off as a factory worker, uh, where he was with another uh, three five hundred men um, going into the factory and uh, you know working class and, and all that comes with that, um, where he wasn't a name but a number. Um, and uh, wasn't allowed to suggest any new ideas. And uh, if you know anything about uh, me, um, you can imagine that my grandfather was the same. We're very opinionated people, which doesn't make us very popular always. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he decided once to, with with my grandmother, to start their own business and started a, a bike sales and bike repairs business. And there was a huge backlash from the mm-hmm. community um, from the other men, um, why are you doing this? You, you think you're better than us. Um, I suppose also because he moved upper class into the middle class um, as, as a business owner. And um, that had me also quite a bit thinking around the fact of how, how these in- dynamics interplay and why these dynamics can become so dangerous. So what happens at that point is, I mean, this was before trade unions came really onto the fore. Um, the working conditions in which men had to work under was was extremely dangerous, um, and their care and, and their well-being wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was their profit line, um, and you know how profit works. It's the most amount of profit for the least amount of expenses, uh, so mm-hmm. people were often underpaid in difficult working conditions for long hours. Um, mm. And often outside of the household, so they wouldn't be working at home. If you think of the baker and the the, the, the house doctor who would make house visits, and the um, the dentist that his dent, dental practice that was attached to his house, 
your, your job and your home were often very much together. Whereas the Industrial Revolution really changed that, where people started to to live um, further and further away from their from their workplaces, um, and and so there was even a division then that was created between um, the the man and the woman of the house, where the man was seen as the provider, and the woman was seen as the homemaker, um, which mm -hmm. in a family-run business you you know that that interplays itself so much into each other, but now that this this dichotomy between the two um, really becomes created, but also the aspirations of what a man needs to be. Um, and mm -hmm. suddenly qualities like being compassionate, being creative um, was um, replaced with the idea of the self-made man. You know, um, this system that the industrial revolution was, was um, positioning for you was that the idea of, a, of success was financial success, the self-made man, completely independent of everybody, wearing the latest suits, um, has any girl he wants, um, you know, where mm. that started the, uh, the, 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 the traits of what Andrew Tate was representing and um, talking about, yeah. right? To, to some extent, uh, although I think that that itself has another element to it. Um, I don't know mm -hmm. if it's useful to sort of bring the different, but, but I'm happy to go for it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So Andrew Tate brings in quite an interesting concept there. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily Andrew Tate. I think it's been there before him, but I think he's sort of the most popular use of it now. Um, mm -hmm. So... With the self-made man also came another concept, um, the concept of control, hey? because you would sit there and you would control two, three hundred workers underneath you, which gives you a lot of responsibility because you've got to make sure that profit line works. Otherwise, you don't have enough to pay the people um, who, who are dependent on that for their paychecks, um, mm -hmm. which, by the way, also takes away your opportunities to be able to be self um, financially independent and self-made, uh, ironically. Uh, because you, you make yourself self-made through the hard work of the people um, um, that work for you. Um, but then another concept started to come in there too, because remember that before the car was invented, we didn't have suburbs. You know, We know that the motor car was basically the start of suburbs, because you, you, you wouldn't be able to have a suburb. You could only live as far as you could um ride a bike or you know there were no buses there were no cars you, you might come on a horse um but um it was really the advent of, you would have to walk basically so it was really the advent of the car that moved suburbs and that changed the geographical space so that we actually lived much further away than um than where we worked um mm -hmm. and i think that that had a negative well i know that that had a negative impact because father wasn't at home as much um, put a lot more stress. Um, father and mother weren't raising the kids as together as was previously. You know, those impacts started to mm -hmm. take place. Um, mm -hmm. Also broken families. Uh, families would break up. Um, one of the, yeah, let me get to Andrew Tate. So one of the concepts that started to become popular, it actually came from a completely different left side uh, view, was a, um, and I've forgotten his name now, um, but the studies of wolves and um, a, a person, was, um, I, I can't believe I forgot his name, but um, he wrote a book around uh, wolf behavior and 
introduce the concepts from that book called the alpha male an alpha male had to do with how he was watching how the different wolves or male wolves within the pack would fight for dominancy uh, and would have all these um there was a hierarchy of of power based on on, on qualities such as the dominant male the um the one who uh, was physically um dominant able to take control and able to lead the problem is that that concept of alpha male, well, you wrote it in a book and it became a number one bestseller and people started to interpolate what was happening with wolves into what was happening with men. And I think so successful that if I talk about alpha male, most of, I'm sure most of you read, uh, listeners will know exactly what we're talking about. The only problem is, is, is that he wrote a book later renouncing the idea and saying that he actually got it completely wrong. And mm. although he got it wrong with wolves, we still work as if this is a construct that exists. Um, and why he got it wrong is the most interesting part. So I think to an extent, what Andrew Tate talks about is, is, is the concept of the alpha male um, and the alpha male being a powerful male and that we shouldn't be um, upset or, or, or throw um, the concept away. Um, the problem with alpha male was that um, wolves don't behave like that. Um, only one set of wolves behave like that. You see, what actually happens and what's more accurate is that um, the, the, the so-called dominant uh, male or alpha male was actually um, had to do with family um, relations. And so um, in, in a, a wolf pack in the wild, um, it's much more around um, a father-son relationship about learning as much as you can and then when you're ready to start up your own wolf packs um mm -hmm. the the reason and, and you don't get the infighting to the same length as you would have um in what he initially observed what he re what why he made the mistake was because he was studying wolves that were in captivity not wolves that were in the wild and so the link that he made was that wolves in captivity behave in the structure in which we have as the alpha male um, narrative. Now, if we put that back onto humans, that starts to say something very interesting because yes, there has been a great popularity in regards with Andrew Tate's and, and the concept of alpha male. Um, but the part that we're missing is, is that if this has become so popular, then Possibly it has more to say with the family strength, in other words, the health of the family units than anything else. And maybe what we're seeing with this explosion of, of sort of alpha male and, and, and the support for Tate might in actual fact be a desperate cry for the need of fathers and the need of healthy family units um, within our mm. society, which I think we're heavily, heavily missing. Mm. That's interesting what you're mentioning now. And to add to that, I think also when I listen to Andrew Tate speaking, what what I also sense is a huge, huge distrust towards women when I hear him speaking. Um, yeah. That you should not trust them, that you're manipulative, etc. And I'm wondering to what degree this is a reflection of unprocessed childhood issues with his own mother. I don't know what happened and I'm not sure if I'm correct, but sometimes what happens also is that uh, the, the relationship with our mother is crucial 
And if we had a parent who wasn't emotionally mature or had uh, the inability to not put their own needs aside for the child, can be a, a parent that you cannot trust, that manipulates the child. And then if you're not aware of that, cannot identify that, we might project it onto other people. And if it was the mother, we might project it onto to women. And then I hear him talk about, basically, I feel, I believe that he feels threatened to be manipulated. And then in turn, instead of being able to be in touch with his emotions and fear, well, because it, as a child that has been cut off, then you have all this suppressed pain and this frustration and this when also the society is teaching you to be meant to be in control, to if, that you're weak if you experience fear, that uh, you otherwise will be dominated, then you if you perceive other people that way, then, you know, you get a dog-eats-dog world in which you start to be the dominant one. Um, it's sad. It's sad because I think with this, I think the main thing with this toxic, toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity is that the worst thing that can happen to you is that your ability to be vulnerable is being taken away from you because a human need of us, of us all is to be able to feel connected, belongingness and power yeah. and control uh, and having to be tough and brave is the opposite of being able to be vulnerable and it not it doesn't allow us to connect so when we have this whole issue now with men against women right um, this whole mm -hmm. discussion we don't need men we don't need women we the, all this all these things it's sad because in the end um, it's about being able to connect to each other and about daring to be vulnerable to each other. And, and I'm wondering, Daniel, um, what would you think the way would be for people basically to go from, for men to go from toxic masculinity to healthy masculinity and what can people in general do to contribute to that, you think? I think we're in a huge mess in regards to even our thinking around this, you know, because the answer almost becomes difficult to say because how guarded the narrative has become. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's take, for example, the topic line, toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity. You see, within there, you're already creating a power dynamic because you're putting two things at each other, right? And we do that because it's easier for us to make sense of the world like that. But just mm -hmm. because it's easier for us to understand the world like that doesn't mean that that's how the world is. And this is one of the most frustrating things. Um, I'm sure you agree with me as, as psychologists is that um, that's never how we see it within the consulting room. Um, what do I mean with that? That's, um, if we want to sort of go with the narrative of men versus women, um, and or we want to go with the narrative of um, white versus black, or we can go with the narrative of us versus them, um, within those terminologies, there's already something that is stopping us from thinking. 
And we need to break free from that thought process first before we can have an authentic, healthy conversation. So I think the first thing is, in my mind, how I make sense of it is to break away from the concept of toxic masculinity and, mm-hmm. and really realize that both men and women are equally capable of doing great damage. Um, I think to, in, in essence, um, if we look at it from a cultural perspective of allowing certain behaviors to carry on and continue, if you go and investigate those situations on ground level, which we as psychologists have to do, uh, you know, we don't have the luxury of dealing with the world in an academic way or in a social media way, we get our hands dirty with this individual and that individual, and they've got to find a way to to sort of um, make it work between the two of them. We slowly start to realize that communities are always made up of both men and women together. Um, some of them are, are compassionate. Some of them struggle with compassion. Um, and these things that we've demarcated towards a specific gender uh, becomes more and more problematic um, as you start to put this into practice. I've, I've met, uh, let's say, for example, just the idea that men are less compassionate than, than women. I've never really experienced that. I've more experienced that uh, some people are very good at being compassionate and some people are not. Now, added to that, mm-hmm. and this is an important link into there, is that we learn how to deal with other people through the ways in which our parents taught us, as you so rightfully uh, play, um, stated um, earlier. Um, and to one extent, I would say um, mothers play a different role than fathers, uh, and only in this one, one way. Now, to an extent, let me just also caution there, because those, those are very heteronormative terms. Um, and I'm let me replace mothers with nurturers and fathers with protectors, not saying that every protector is, 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 is a male and, and not every nurturer is, is a female. In my own family, um, we have, um, especially with the grandparents, we have beautiful examples of, of how that um, was different. Um, yeah. And to add to, uh, just to, 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 to add to that, Daniel, I think it's important to yeah. highlight that we all have masculine traits and feminine traits exactly absolutely so we're talking about being able to allow uh, our masculine traits um but i think yeah but i think my Mm -hmm. argument is that maybe we should stop talking about them as masculine and feminine traits and just call them all under one umbrella human traits um Mm -hmm. because the moment that we start to say something is masculine or something is feminine then we are mm-hmm. back into that whole sort of binary idea of us, them, mm-hmm. you know, then I become a yeah. feminine ma- yeah. male. And I think yes. before I'm a feminine male, I'm a human being. And maybe that's where we need to start to have the conversation to, to start off with. Otherwise, we're back at the binaries and then there's no space for, for fluidity. Yes. Yeah. Good point. But coming back to the nurture and, and the protector is, is that generally what happens um, is that one of the two um, parents, if you like, takes on a more nurturing role, one takes on a more protective role, although there's a fluidness within that. Um, But often it's the nurturer, and in most, or in a lot of cases, that becomes the mother role, um, 
and the mother role often does become the way in which the child engages if we use heteronormative if we talk about the mother and the father then the mother will be the gatekeeper of how that child will experience the father or how that child will experience mm. the mother um, mm. that role is very distinctly important and it's got a mm. lot to do with the amount of time that the child um, spends with with that mother it's got a lot to do with things such as breastfeeding and those very informative early years in which the needs of that child is protected and looked after by, by that mother. Hmm. If we have a breakup within the relationship between mother and father and father moves away and mother is at home um, or, or uh, the child lives with the mother, um, how the mother talks about the father will often become the scripts in which the child will start to talk to themselves. I've had it's, uh, I've had really interesting cases of of um, young teen girls or, or, or girls in their twenties who battling in regards to having um, you know who, who who are heterosexual and start to have difficulties in regards to relating to to men um, and, and and having conversations because of the line at which the the, the if we talk about the unhealthy mother has not dealt with the, the the issues that she has with father um, and that starts to color in onto the onto the child and the child doesn't have anything else to base it to because you are their world and so that starts to become the core and the blueprints in which they start to relate to other men or to other women within their lives um, and we, we see this playing out um, we know that a lot of the time, I mean, there's good research to, to back me up on this, is, is that a lot of the time, the hate that, for example, um, women get on social media about how they look is often given by other women. And the, the, the standards that are set are often in places where they should have got support and, and, and should have got stability. And I think that that comes in when we see it as, you know, that plays beautifully, uh, well, not beautifully, but within that binary. Because if we say that all men are evil and all, word, uh, all women are, are, are vulnerable, um, where is then the space in which we can start to change those narratives for ourselves? But where is also um, the space where we don't create a world where um, maybe those things aren't where they're supposed to be? And what makes human beings such a difficult mat, um, I don't know what to call it now, um, creature or animal, is the fact that we depend so much on the narratives around us in order to shape us. Remember that we by far have um, one of the slowest developments of any other animal or any other mammal. Uh, remember that our biggest defense mechanism against the elements and against other animals is our ability to form society. So relationships building is basically our number one defense mechanism. And remember that within the first 18 years, we are impressionable to, this, to the fact that the majority of legal systems around the world will say that until you're 18, you might appreciate uh, the, the difference between right or wrong, but are in no way able or capable of acting in accordance to that appreciation. 
So we know so, that up until the age of 18, we're impressionable. And so you're saying it's important for us to leave these concepts of that, that divide men and women and masculinity and femininity and toxic and um, that that is important for people to go from toxic humanity to healthy humanity. Um, I do believe that it can be, it, it can, it gives us an overview if we have a difference between, if we have a, the, you know, we can differentiate between toxic male masculine traits and healthy masculine traits. A, a toxic masculine trait would be dominance, a healthy and aggression and healthy um, masculine trait would be assertiveness, for instance. Um, suppose that men can have, suppose we still hold on to the masculine and feminine sides. I think it would be great if society would be able to allow slowly for women to, to show their masculine sides more, that they, girls are allowed to be angry, don't need to be the good girls. So saying, oh, what a good girl is already dangerous, right? It already jeopardizes yeah. the ability to become our authentic self. And um, a young boy um, who is shamed for being fearful for doing something. Sometimes I remember when I was little, I remember that I've sometimes caught myself to feel relieved that I wasn't a boy. And that was because I was, I would be terrified to be a boy because there's this expectation that I sh should not be afraid, which is, which is a terrible, I can imagine it's a terrible experience because then if I would be afraid in certain instances, and why would a boy be less afraid than a girl? I don't see yeah. the logic. <laughs> in certain things so and then and then that is not allowed then you will be ostracized so that yes. must in itself be traumatic and that is what go boys go go through and they need to go through it on their own because it's a shameful thing and that now in their own inner world in our experience when they're they feel frightened um, they feel they cannot even feel frightened in their own internal world because it is immediately associated with rejection and inadequacy, feelings of inadequacy. So yeah. um, if we would be able, uh, I think, as a society, when it starts with the mothers and the fathers to be more in touch with their own vulnerability and more importantly, their own fear of their own vulnerability that could be a great start i have caught myself laughing at people sometimes uh i didn't i wasn't aware of it when they were being vulnerable basically i was shaming them and i never realized that's because i'm doing this work that i'm looking so much at myself and it was perhaps a micro laughing at someone but then I realized this is exactly shaming someone when being vulnerable. So I'm doing it myself to others uh, and I'm supposedly aware and a psychologist. So can you imagine other people out there who are not in touch with their own internal rejection? I think that would be very important for us to also look at ourselves in general. Do we shame other people for their vulnerability? And are we willing to 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 be open about that and not and not condone ourselves for that, but to forgive ourselves for that and to be allowed for young children to 
to to allow them to be vulnerable too. Yeah. I think that would be also an important aspect of the whole healing because it's a generational, it's a fact generational trauma passed down, right? Yeah, and I am a little bit worried, um, especially with these sort of male traits, um, if, if we want to call them that, although I, I, I totally don't want to call them male traits, I want to call them human traits. Yes. But said, I mean, yes. let's say, for example, like what you say is the sort of bravado um, towards vulnerability is that there is something also quite beautiful about having bravado within vulnerability, because it's about the fact of being able to handle the situation, even though underneath um, it might feel like um, it's nuts. I mean, I, I just remember. Um, situations where um, something needs to be done, there's an emergency, we very much depend on that bravado to just calm the whole situation down so that nobody re gets really hurt. You know, it's the person with bravado that usually gets the engine running and gets the person to the hospital in, 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 in quick succession. But what can sometimes happen is that if we start looking at a certain response, because remember, um, Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is acting despite the fear, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think it's quite important what you say. So is that, and, and even, I mean, is there any response that we want to be without? I mean, anger itself is a very important emotion because if you don't have anger, you don't get to assertive, but you also don't get to boundaries. Um, anger is a very important part of boundaries and anger is a very important part of protectiveness. I mean, the anger in, in regards mm -hmm. to things like so, such as the Me Too movements or the Black Lives Matter movement was a very important um, vessel towards bringing in proper social change. The, the problem comes in is when we start to have a problem with somebody else's response to, to, to their own vulnerability. And when we start telling people how they should be vulnerable, I think that's where mm. the danger comes in. A lot of pathology. I mean, look, take, for example, the, the whole concept of depression. Depression has got nothing to do with being sad. It's got to do with being so suppressed from your feelings that when your feelings happen, they're no longer spontaneous. They just become your default. So you lose all spontaneity mm. of your emotions being able to communicate to you. And I think to, to, is that suppression, suppression often happens when I have a natural spontaneous response, um, but it's, it's immediately seen by other people as being unacceptable. And so I come back and either it becomes an exaggerated form of that response, um, or it becomes um, that I'm not allowed to have that response. It becomes a villainized response. And I think mm -hmm. that's often where, where these things become uh, become dangerous. Yes. Um, frustration. Uh, frustration starts there. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Not being heard. Not being heard. My, yes. Which makes you my, feel my inadequate other... and is a recipe for the toxic masculinity. Yeah. And if you're a young guy who doesn't find his way in the world, um, is mm -hmm. told that the way you behave is, is too masculine, looks like toxic masculinity, and constantly ostracized as a result of it, um, mm. and, 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 and don't feel like anybody's listening to you, nobody's taught you, yes. your father never taught you, your mother never taught you yes. how to be able to communicate your feelings in an effective way. Well, at some point you give very... up or you take the matters in own hand.
and then you go watch a video of a guy who starts talking about the things that you're struggling with and you feel like he's talking for you and the next thing you know mm. it's not a hard push to go from there to suddenly starting to play around with his ideology or his framework and and then you get grouped into that i think what you, you called the brotherhood you know that brotherhood that comes mm. into place there and mm. and and this becomes dangerous and it's that collectiveness and that inability of critical engagement about what you've got and a disconnection from your emotive self it's the combination of those three things that i think is what makes it prone that a masculinity or or, or any kind of humanity starts to become toxic and starts to become uh, dangerous for yourself and towards others so maybe those three areas is is actually the answer critical engagements connection with yourself and please can we start listening to each other instead of trying to guess what the other person is trying to say? Um, let's stop yeah. um, being so prescriptive and be more listening. And we can only do that. I think I totally agree, Daniel. We can only do that by start listening to ourselves first. We need to be able to hold space for ourselves in order to be able to hold space for other people, to be able to listen instead of judge. When we judge ourselves, we're going to judge others. When we're able to be compassionate towards ourselves, we can be compassionate towards others. Daniel, this was such a lovely conversation. It was so interesting. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And, I think and, it, and let's go. Yeah, go ahead. It became a minestrone soup with all the flavors. It was going to be fun for your readers to sort of digest and find the finished product. Yes. It would also be amazing to hear what the what the listeners' uh, opinions or ideas are on this. But um, thank you so much for today, and uh, I would love to have you uh, continue this subject or another subject some other time. Uh, Hope to see you soon again, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, stop the recording now. It was really fun, uh, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs>